As has been mentioned already, what a delight and a joy it is to come together on this Sunday morning, the first day of the week. That day recognized as the Lord's Day in the opening chapter of the Revelation. Good to see each and every person capable and able to be with us today and how thankful we all are for that blessing that we've been able to offer our worship in this assembled way. As you know, as some of these songs, I'll be a worker for the Lord, work and pray. As we utilize our talents in those ways, in some way we come today to thinking about a centurion. In fact, I entitled the lesson, That Centurion. I hope as you and I give thought for the next few moments to the actions, the words, the life of this centurion to which we shall turn our attention, we'll be motivated, encouraged, and we in our own faith will be marched forward to appreciate what he saw and what he heard and his reaction to all of it. It is with that said that let me turn to our introductory slide and at least motivate you in the following way. Have you ever given thought to the people in the biblical record that in essence were there at the Lord's crucifixion? One might well call them the cast of the cross. And yet in that way, one could build a host of lessons, no doubt, around various people who were there. The apostles, various women, the thieves, Pilate, not to mention Herod and, yea, a host of others. Each one of them had their own perspective as they witnessed the events unfolding before their very eyes. But yet, isn't it remarkable to think of one person I didn't include in that list, but will be the subject primarily of the lesson today. What about a centurion who was there? What did he see? What was his reaction to it? And isn't it amazing that given the nature of who he was, that can be a tremendous element of encouragement to you and to me. In fact, I think we'll be amazed before we're over at what his reaction was. Let's start our lesson then like this. To make mention of a centurion is to, is to ask an immediate question, what was a centurion? You and I know that was not the person's actual proper name. This is just his occupation. What did he do for a living? Well, this opening slide will, in fact, not only attempt to answer that, but put us in place to appreciate what's going to follow it. First of all, a centurion, you and I encounter them a few times in the New Testament record. We'll note some of them in just a moment, but for right now, could I at least draw to your attention the following. A centurion was a person who was a particular commander in the Roman army. Now, you and I know the Romans, of course, were the ruling people of the world at this particular time. Rome was their imperial city. Rome was the place in which we find the Caesars ruling. And yet, at various locations and places throughout the empire, there were those who were over a certain number of the Roman army that was stationed in that place. For that reason, the next thing on the slide, you'll note this. A particular legion in the Roman army was a given battalion of some 6,000 men. But the fact is, that grouping itself was divided, as you can see on the slide, into 10 groupings or battalions, each one having 600 men. One step further is this. Each one of those battalions, which again involved 600 men, was divided into six groupings of 100 Quite often, those groupings were called centuries. You know, the word century is an is actual Roman word, and you and I use it to refer to a hundred years. That's a century. 
they could use that word to refer to a grouping of 100 men in the army. That was their century. A centurion was the leader of that 100 group section of men. Now with that noted, you can already gain a feeling of the close connection that such a man would have had with the ongoing efforts in the Roman army, with the ongoing appreciations of not only answering to the authority above him, but being in regard to the man in authority over those below him. This man, you see, occupied a rather powerful position in yet many ways. For that reason, the next thing on the slide is this. These centurions are mentioned a few times in the New Testament. One of the first occurrences you and I encounter is Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 5 of that chapter, a centurion came to Jesus. And this centurion made this amazing statement. My servant is deathly ill. I'm paraphrasing. Now at that point, Jesus made the observation. He, of course, could read the hearts of people, and he was amazed at the faith of this man because you may recall... The man went on to say, I don't need you to come to my house. If you'll just give the word, he'll be healed on the spot, even though you're not there. You may recall that when Jesus, in fact, listened to that kind of faith, the Lord said, I have not found this kind of faith in all of Israel. And yet this man was a Gentile. And he had such confidence, such faith, such assurance, he didn't even need the Lord to physically be present to heal his servant. Jesus encouraged that kind of faith even in others. But aren't you amazed? A centurion said that. He wasn't an Israelite. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't one who had come out of Old Testament knowledge. And yet he had become so equipped, so knowledgeable, so faithful, that he was even that astounded at what the Lord could accomplish. Our first exposure to a centurion was a great one, don't you think? But that wouldn't be the last. What about that interesting scene in Acts chapter 10? Wasn't it there we encounter perhaps the most well-known of all New Testament centurions? Cornelius was one of them. Here was a man, you see, who you and I readily often recall that he was the first of the Gentile converts. Isn't it interesting then that as Peter was dispatched to go to his house, Peter had to have the Holy Spirit tell him to go and preach to this man. And as he went, we ultimately find the Spirit again encouraging him, and yet when he arrives, what an astounding scene it is. Cornelius had assembled his family. He had assembled his nearest acquaintances because he was so moved by the words that Peter was going to share with him. You and I recall Peter was baptized, or rather Cornelius was baptized before that chapter was over. We have to be astounded, I would think at least at these two centurions we have encountered, despite the fact they were leaders in the Roman army. It is with that in mind I might ask you to note this. The centurion we're about to encounter today, he too, is positioned and presented in the most wonderful and delightful and positive way. Let's journey th as you come to the bottom of that slide and note the following. These centurions were certainly well acquainted with the thought of authority. They themselves were entrusted with it as they ruled over a hundred men, but they themselves understood well as they answered to those who were their superiors. 
one of the first things then to note is this, the Roman army. At the time that you and I read about it in the pages of the New Testament, they were a skilled and well-capable and equipped group at not only following orders, but at bringing about death. I suppose it could well be argued that no grouping of people in the history of the world has been better equipped at bringing about the heinous death of anybody, more so than the Roman Empire. Even the ancient Assyrians weren't that skilled at it. Even the ancient Babylonians weren't that known for it. But the Romans had made death, painful death, humiliating death, excruciating death. They had made it an art form. It was called crucifixion. Nowhere in the history of all the annals of time has been putting people to death by crucifixion more become an art form than it was in Rome. And these centurions were those that presided over it. Those that who directly watched it, served in regard to it, and followed orders concerning it. That's what they did. This centurion, you see, had been well known for that. That led me to lesson number one today as we close that slide. Would you think for a moment then about the power of the gospel? This man, this centurion, we don't even know his name. The Bible doesn't tell us. But he was a centurion. And he was going to be an eyewitness to the Lord's crucifixion. How many other crucifixions had he seen? I have no idea. Perhaps hundreds, thousands he may have seen. And yet, something unique about this one. It's going to lead him to make statements he never made about any of the other ones. It's going to lead him to appreciate that which had never been true of any of the other crucifixions he had seen including the two thieves crucified on this occasion. He didn't make that statement about them. Doesn't that impress upon you and me the power of the gospel? The gospel so affected the mind of this man. And he was a killing machine. It would lead him to make a statement that was a part of our lesson text today. May you and I never overlook the power of the gospel. It can change the hardest heart of anybody if they'll just let it have a chance. That's what the gospel can do. Those whose hearts may well appear to you and me to be so hardened in sin, hardened in iniquity, hardened in rebellion against the God that loves them. And yet this centurion whose heart had been such that he perhaps over the course of skilled and capable training had been brought to bring somebody to death and never give it a second thought. Kill them and go enjoy a nice lunch afterward. Kill them and go to sleep that night and think nothing of it. And yet this man's heart, by virtue of the gospel and what he saw, had been moved to make the statement, Truly this man was the Son of God! And he just watched him be crucified. Don't you know that this man had to be eyewitness to something special to make that kind of statement? May you and I never lose sight of the power in the gospel. God's truth will never be conquered. It will prevail in the end of time. It's going to reign supreme. Everybody who denied it here and didn't come to their senses and respond to it as they should, they'll answer for all eternity for it. But oh, if they'll give it a chance here, it'll change lives, it'll change thinking, it'll change the entire disposition. That's wonderful. 
Oh, how you and I should be thankful for the power of the gospel. Romans 1.16 will still say, Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the just shall live by faith. That power inherited the gospel is what's going to motivate us through the rest of this lesson. And so at this point, why don't we reflect then on what this centurion saw? And not only that, what he heard. The biblical accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they share with us some of the details of the crucifixion of, the, of, of Jesus our Lord, and as they point out that which took place, we can piece some of that together and appreciate some of the comments I've asked you to note on this slide. I gave you a bit of a foretaste of it a moment ago when I pointed out that even ancient civilizations, the Assyrians, as cruel as they were, the book of Nahum points out that cruelty, the Babylonians, as cruel as they were, and the book of Habakkuk points out that, they were not as artfully skilled at the humiliating death of crucifixion. In fact, the Romans are the ones that brought that kind of killing into its purview. They brought it about and made it something that the other previous civilizations had not. For that reason on this slide, you and I might think today about putting people to death. We know it happens. We know even in our day and time, there are those that face the electric chair, and there are those that face lethal injection. The Romans sought to make death a public display of the most excruciating, humiliating, and awfully presented thing that one could imagine. They thought about the ways that you could put someone to death in the most painful, the most incredible spectacle of public humiliation that could be. And they brought about this which we call crucifixion. You and I know our Lord submitted to it. That's the way in which He died. But it was preceded by a scourging. And along the way, there was a crown impressed upon His head. And there were other elements that brought about that degree of incredible blood loss and pain. On this slide, you might then note this. The centurion saw all of that. This centurion, you see, was over that charge of men, and he was stationed in the Jerusalem area. And therefore, he was acquainted with and witnessed that which was the crucifixion on that Thursday in AD 30 of our Lord. In so doing, that which he saw and that which he heard brings me to note for you that statement in 1 Peter 2.21. I mentioned a minute, a minute ago, how many other crucifixions had this centurion seen? And how many others had he heard the replies of those who had been crucified on those occasions? You and I have an eyewitness account. One of those thieves, you may remember, railed that day. Can you imagine how many other times throughout that countless numbers of crucifixions he heard various people cry out for mercy and perhaps curse and rail on the Romans that were doing this to them? He didn't hear a single word out of Jesus' mouth like that. The Lord never cursed those Romans. He never railed against them as to how unfair and unjust this was. 
He never turned an eye of wickedness toward them as if by some means He deserved to come off the cross despite the fact He had never done anything wrong. 1 Peter 2.21 will say, Never did any guile come out of the Lord's mouth. Not once. Even on this day when what they were doing was unjust and unfair, He never profanely described those Romans. He didn't look at them and spit on them. How often, I wonder, had He seen other people executed, spit on the Romans that were there? The Lord never did it. May I submit, maybe that's one of the elements that was beginning to turn his attention to the man that was now being crucified. He didn't like the others. He wasn't like the others. Among the things that he saw and heard, what about Luke 23, 34? Not only did the Lord not spit on them, and not only did he not revile them and curse them, but you recall in that text he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He actually was desirous of them being forgiven for the heinousness of this day and for the choices and actions that they were doing. And remember, those soldiers were commanded by these centurions and others to drive the nails in. That was what they did. And the Lord prayed for them. Prayed that they'd be forgiven. Prayed that they could be right with God. Prayed that this issue from them could be removed. I feel sure the centurion had never heard any other executed person say that. He was beginning to see a very different individual, the Son of God, that centurion. To give thought to what he saw and what he witnessed and what he heard, I would call to your attention other parts on that slide before us. I've entitled it Lesson Number 2 in our consideration today. This centurion, in the person of Jesus, saw a man motivated by love and motivated by sacrifice for the well-being of others. That had not been true of others that were executed. That had not been true of what he had seen, no doubt, so many times before. As Jesus exemplified that degree of concern and well-being and love, in 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8, Marching orders for all that would be a Christian. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. You see, not only was that exemplified in the Lord, it is demanded of each of us to be those who see the consideration in light of the love to be seen for others. This centurion saw it manifested in Jesus so clearly so abundantly. Among those crucifixions he had otherwise seen, the distinction to this one must have been stark. The distinction to this one must have been evident. Jesus didn't act like all those others that had been crucified. And in fact, even while on the cross, don't you wonder how near this centurion may have been standing? Maybe he heard the conversation between Jesus and one of those thieves when that thief, even in his mentality, he was changed. The Lord changed him. Not miraculously, but in conversation when that thief, who first had railed against Jesus, but he came to recognize, I am up here justly for what I've done, but not him. Not him. And the Lord, you see, was quick to say to him today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. 
Satyria never heard anybody else talk like that on the cross. And yet, one more thing about that is this. In Romans 8, verses 35 to 39, the closing five chapters, the closing five verses of that chapter, Paul, as he wrote and closed that particular eighth chapter, he said, the power that was evident by way of the Christ is something you and I should carefully thought. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Yea, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him that loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nobody can separate you or me from the love of God except you or me. I can choose to be lost if I want to. I can choose to go to hell if I want to. But it's not the Lord's desire. For the Lord would have all men to be saved and come to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. The Lord would have all men to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 9. But He does let you and me make our own choice. I can choose to stay distant from the blood of Christ and the love that He showed if I want to. How tragic a decision. Even this centurion had better senses than that. For you'll notice in the text before us as we close that slide, this centurion witnessed another thing that perhaps was quite shocking. You may recall that the Romans did give the opportunity for those in this process of crucifixion to receive something that might at least somewhat deaden the pain. Now, surely it wasn't dead in all of it, but you remember they offered to our Lord this mixture of vinegar. The Lord refused it. Do you suppose the centurion was surprised? Why won't he take it? Maybe he came to realize the fact, for it was over, that this one, as the Son of God, was bearing the fullness of the sins of every person for all of time. And he was doing it because he loved them. He was doing it because He cared for them. The last slide before us today will continue this issue of what He saw and heard by allowing us to think of it this way. One more thing the centurion saw was this. At the noonday hour that day, a darkness fell over the land. A darkness so thorough, a darkness so remarkable that don't you know it must have caused wonderment in him and yea so many others for three hours three hours in the midst of the day darkness covered this earth as a reminder of that which men were choosing to do and putting to death the great son of god but how would the centurion have looked at it even the centurion would have known that this wasn't just a, an eclipse have you ever heard someone claim that that was a solar eclipse that's nonsense it could not have been. First of all, solar eclipses don't last three hours. Do you remember in 2017 when we were blessed in this part of the world and it was only total darkness, you see, for a few minutes. And it was partial for longer than that, but it certainly wasn't three hours. Solar eclipses 
cannot last that long. Not only that, what time of month was this? You may recall the Lord was crucified at the Passover season. You and I know when that was. As you can see on the slide, that was the very time of month when it's astronomically impossible for there to be an eclipse. It wasn't an eclipse. This was a miraculous event in which God was impressing upon the human family the terrible choice of what they were then doing, putting to death Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. It might well be in that light. What about the sacrifice of Christ is lesson three today. Jesus came to this planet. He came as the Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew 1, verse 23. As He did so, He came to save men from their sins, Matthew 1, 21. He came to, in fact, present, Thou hast seen me, thou hast seen the Father, Jesus would tell Philip in John 14, 9. The Son of God came to sacrifice Himself for all of us. I suppose that in light of the earlier comments that Jesus had made, this centurion may well have come to realize this man could have taken himself off that cross if he wanted to. Isn't that amazing? Now the centurion wouldn't have been there in Gethsemane the night before when Jesus made the statement to Peter, Put up your sword. Don't you know I could call twelve legions of angels to remove myself from this moment? But that was not the Father's will. It was the Father's will that He endured this. And He submitted in all ways to it. If the centurion came to at least think along those lines, how impressed must he have been as he watched this man Jesus, as he appreciated the difference in him compared to the others. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, the centurion would also have been aware the veil in that temple was rent from top to bottom. We've often described the thickness of those hangings was perhaps something like that. You can imagine fabric that thick. No man could have torn it. And furthermore, it was several, several feet off the ground, far higher than any man could reach. And it began to be torn at the top. Almighty God was rending asunder the veil between the most holy place and the holy place, announcing once and for all, through this man, man will have entrance into this place heaven itself, and the grandness of being with God forever. That veil was rent. God Almighty signaled indeed what had taken place. The centurion challenges all of us as we close that slide this way. What about the reactions? It's now time to ask. We have noted what he saw, and we've appreciated what he heard. How did he react? And what did he say? May I point out to you that Matthew and Luke both give us some information in addition to Mark. Pulling those together, I share with you what is at the top. First, in Luke 23, 47, the centurion declared Jesus innocent. Isn't that amazing? Pilate had said he was innocent. Herod apparently felt somewhat similarly, and now even the centurion agreed. Our Lord had done nothing worthy of death. This centurion thus himself declared, Our Lord is innocent. That's not all. In the next statement, may I say, 
the centurion and those with him, that is, those over whom he had charge. The text says they watched Jesus. May I suggest to you that's interesting. No doubt often as this centurion had put people to death, after it's over, go on about your business. There was nothing more to see, nothing more to do. And yet the text emphasizes he watched Jesus. He had already come to realize something's unique, something's different about him. And that uniqueness, that difference, manifested no doubt what he's about to say. The centurion was convinced, absolutely convinced. Not only that, look at what I invite you to note next. I've in fact quoted you this. The text says that the centurion stood over against him. Maybe we have never given much thought to what that phrase means. What does it mean to stand over against him? As I did more research on that, it appeared that the significance was this. Quite often the pictures you and I see about the cross, we see this man, perhaps Jesus, on a cross, and maybe he is several feet in the air. Many of the records I was able to find do not indicate that the crosses were that high off the ground. Now they were in the shape we've seen, but typically, as far as I was able to find, they were quite shorter, at least closer to the ground. I would suggest to you that given this Golgotha location, maybe the centurion was able to stand on a little rock and he could look Jesus in the eye. He could see Him face to face. And do you, don't you know if that's true? He could appreciate in the eyes of this man. There wasn't the hatred that he had seen in others. There wasn't the sense of evil and despair he had seen in others. There wasn't the sense of rebellion he had seen no doubt so often. He could look into the eyes of the Son of God. And in that, he could make this statement. Truly, this man was the Son of God. He was convinced. What he had seen and what he had heard... The events of that day were so different than what he had seen. He declared in that text of Mark 15, 39, Truly, verily, assuredly, this man is the Son of God. Have you and I bowed before him in humble obedience? If his gospel could convince a Roman centurion, it can change any of our hearts. We can come to be a faithful servant of his. He loved us enough to die for us. In 1 John 4, that point is made so abundantly. We love Him because He first loved us. And in the essence of that love and the characteristic connected to it, we can see through the eyes of a centurion what He saw that day. And we too can appreciate the overflowing love He had for us, and we can respond in kind as we faithfully strive to obey Him. Though he were a son, yet learned to obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Those famous words of Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, challenge all of us today. Have you humbly bowed before the Master? If you haven't, why not today? If a centurion could be convinced, surely any of us could. If, however, you have been a faithful Christian at some time, but as of today, you're not. You've allowed things to separate you from the Lord. Remember, we learned earlier, nothing can unless you let it. 
unless you permit it, unless you allow it to be. Today, we'd be honored to help, to assist, to encourage in any way we can. But it's the gospel of Christ that calls you, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. It's the gospel to which you'd be answering. We're only happy to just be assistants. If you'd like to become a Christian today, believe in the Lord with all your heart. Repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And if you have known that way of life and have chosen to walk from it, would you please, in tenderness, come back to your first love? Because the Lord begs you to. In the same way He could say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's anxious to forgive you if, he will, if you will but let Him. You've got to repent first. As the New Testament teaches of that, change your life in terms of having a mindset toward those sins. Realize they've separated you from the God that loves you far too long. Turn back to Him in love and come running faithfully to His side. He'll forgive you. He will make of you a life that will be that which will lead you to eternity and in a way that's good in heaven. If that's the condition of your life, repent of those sins and make confession of them. And we'd love to help you while together we stand and while we sing.